0: Welcome everybody to School Psych Podcast. Uh, So happy that everyone is here with us tonight. We've got a a great topic and I think that's going to really make us kind of think about some things. So I'm excited for that. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist and I'm in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca who's going to tell everybody how you can participate live tonight. Rebecca.
1: Hello everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut and I'm really excited to have you here with us tonight. If you are tuning in live watching the video on YouTube please just sign into your YouTube account because you can comment right alongside in the uh, right alongside the video in the chat and if you are watching the video later or listening on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast please also feel free to Write us questions or comments or any thoughts that you have while listening, either on Facebook, on the School Psych, Your School Psychologist Facebook page, or on the School Psych podcast page, our dedicated podcast Facebook page. And then we also have a Twitter handle, at Podcast Psych on Twitter. So if you tweet at us, please use the hashtag Psych Podcast. And I'll be looking out for notifications this evening as well. So if you'd like to share a more private message, please feel to inbox us on any of those other social media platforms. And now I'm going to pass it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our great guest.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric, and I'm also a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And we are happy and excited to have Dr. Maxwell Pearl with us this evening. And he is a neuroscientist, and I'll give you just a, a brief bio, uh, but wanted to just uh, sort of introduce this topic. There, We see and hear and talk about so many things that are uh, neuro-related or neuropsychological related, and we use that term, I think, um, neurological pretty frequently in the field of school psychology. And I'm going to guess that we don't always know <laughs> what we're talking about, so... Uh, sometimes I think we throw those those terms around, and so um, I'm excited to have Dr. Pearl with us this evening and to talk a little bit about polyvagal theory and about perhaps some myths and uh, uh, truths and untruths maybe uh, in the neurological understanding that uh, us lay folks might have. So, uh, But real quick, a little about Dr. Pearl. He is a facilitator, teacher, writer, and polymath who lives in Northern California. He received his BA in natural science and mathematics from Bennington College and his PhD in neuroscience from Case Western Reserve University. He's taught at Hampshire College from 1989 to 1999 as an assistant and associate professor of biology. And he's been an HIV, AIDS educator and activist a, uh, advocate. He has also written scientific and technical articles as well as had his poetry appear in two anthologies. Uh, he has also recently published creative nonfiction and has been writing science fiction since 2006. He's an avid reader and fan of science fiction since he has began reading. Uh, he's also both a scientist and technologist by trade. And as a polymath, his interests span a wide range of topics, including science, technology, history, culture, politics, race, gender, sexuality, philosophy, spirituality, and religion. He's held a variety of leadership positions in community faith and activist organizations and has a, also a longtime practitioner of contemplative spirituality, both in Buddhist and Christian traditions, and has a deep interest in contemplative and healing rituals and practices from all traditions. He's has a certificate of theological studies from Pacific School of Religion. Welcome, Dr. Pearl. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, as much of our audience will be educators and school psychologists, so uh, we want to just sort of maybe get a brief overview about polyvagal theory itself Mm -hmm. and uh, some of that neurological stuff that we throw around uh, so quickly.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so just a clarification. So polyvagal theory is a specific theory that was put forth by Stephen Porges, um, and it basically uh, includes the concept of, uh, neuroception, which is that we can detect threat in our environment, and then a hierarchical system where there's um, the, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems, as well as our social engagement system, which is something that is um, sort of new to that theory, which is the idea that we, um, the way in which we engage with each other um, can uh, interact with each other. And specifically, it's about when we detect threat, we try different strategies um and and that um in the end if we're if we're under threat the social engagement is is not available to us but when we are feeling safe in our environment then social engagement is is available to us and we, we can engage and there's more complexity to it I mean, this is just a really kind of quick overview but what's important about the polyvagal theory is that it is a he has very specific ideas about the vagal nerve, and specifically the dorsal vagal and the and the and the ventral vagal um, nuclei, uh, and and so there's very specific neuro, neuro neurological and and neuro, neurophysiological um, proposals in the polyvagal theory, which is not talked a lot about when people talk about when mostly psychologists and folks in my realm and sort of embodiment teaching talk about polyvagal theory. We mostly are talking about. Um, How we respond to threat, how our bodies respond to uh, stress, our fight, flight, freeze, um, or faint responses, appeasement, and that sort of thing. Um, So that's the the bigger picture uh, of of polyvagal theory. I
1: I don't want to jump the gun too much, but I'm just wondering, uh, within polyvagal theory, is there anything about sort of like a practical thing that we can do given the what he puts forward and, and what's happening internally?
3: So the, the challenge of it is that, um, so as, as we'll talk about, I think in a little bit, so the many of the specific neurophysiological um, mechanisms that he posits aren't actually supported by science. Um, and so, and, and so, but what's interesting is that it is true that, those bigger picture pieces about how our bodies, how our brains respond to threat, how we detect threat, how that, how that actually inhibits social engagement, um, how our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems work together to, to handle stress and threat. That's all stuff that actually does have definite application in therapy. Um, so it's, it's sort of, I think what's going to be as we talk about this is distinguishing between these bigger picture issues around how our our minds our bodies and, you know, respond to stress and threat. And, and then these sort of detailed little things, which don't have scientific back backing.
2: That's fascinating. I just thinking here, um, you know, we, we have a lot of things that sort of uh, on the fringe, mindfulness um, co-regulation, all of these, topics and terms that we talk about in school. Um, and, and we, you know, I do think, uh, many of us in schools do talk about, uh, fight, flight, or freeze and that initial, um, you know, fear response or, or, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing and how children aren't available for instruction and socialization when they're in survivor mode, survival mode or something. Yep.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because one of the things that, that I know about that is actually quite – is actually been well-known for a while is something called um, the amygdala hijack, um, which maybe you've, you've heard about. But the amygdala is this little nucleus in, the, in our midbrain that's actually really very important in, um, both, in both in neuroception as well as in um, uh, how, how, our, how we respond to fear – and how we process fear, how we learn from fear. Um, it's called fear conditioning. Um, and it has a, a function where when we are in a space of threat, our amygdala says, uh, no, you're not doing, you're not thinking, you're not going to do any thinking. It cuts off, it actually it literally cuts off traffic to our, to our forebrain, to our thinking mind. And it, it makes sense. You know, it's like if we're if we're going to be, if we're, you know, being chased by a lion, we want to be thinking, well, how long are those claws? And how fast can it run? And, you know, we just want to get out of there, right? Or, or hide or whatever we're going to do. We don't want to think about it. And so, yeah, it's when we are in the threat, we don't have access to our ability to, to make, cho- make choices that are good for us or to really learn. Um,
1: yeah. So when that happens and, and we have a, Conditioned fear response, like maybe in a um, in a phobia or something. Mm-hmm. If would if I'm really terrified of dogs, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so we typically think of sort of the the treatment for that. If I need to overcome this phobia, if it's grown in places where it's mm-hmm. kind of impacting my life, I need to not avoid dogs. I need to kind of get closer and closer to being able to tolerate what's Mm -hmm. happening in my body when I'm close Mm -hmm. to dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess my question is that, is there something different about that view of what's happening in my nervous system and what Stephen Porges would say?
3: I don't know that, I I don't know that, 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 that the, Detailed part of the polyvagal theory addresses that issue particularly. Okay. It doesn't really address fear conditioning. I mean, really, it's about these two parts of the vagal nerve and their, their relationship with each other and their relationship with, um, the, the rest of our nervous systems. And, and the, the, the idea is that one of them is evolutionarily newer. And so it does different things, um, than the evolutionary older one does. And there actually isn't a lot of evidence for that. Um, and there also, there's this idea that, that the newer one, um, provides, um, connections between the, um, sort of the heart and the face. Um, this, the, 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 he calls it the face-heart connection. But there actually isn't a lot of evidence that there's actually connections between the facial control, um, and the vagal nerve.
1: So oh, interesting. And is any of that related to the triune brain stuff? that people? I, I think that, as a theory, has been largely debunked. Is that right? Yeah,
3: as I recall. I'm trying to remember that. It was, it's okay. been a long time since that was, that was, uh, that was a big thing. Yeah. Okay.
0: When I'm thinking of this kind of uh, fight or flight response, it seems like that would be a very kind of an adrenaline, kind of short-term reaction mm-hmm. to a fear that that wouldn't, maybe persist but a a lot of times you know as educators we hear a lot about you know trauma trauma exposed children and that you know they are perpetually in in the state kind of long term is that something Mm -hmm. that happens is that like that you can kind of get stuck in that or is this more a short-term type of reaction and then you move out of that does that make sense
3: well so i mean the the initial response to threat is designed to be short term i mean that is how it's designed it's designed to get you out of trouble or have you deal with whatever it is you have to deal with in the moment. Um, when you get into a chronic stress condition, it's a different – It's I mean, I think it's somewhat of a different set of mechanisms. I think some of the same ones get reactivated over and over again. But there's other stuff like there's the cortisol activation then the cortisol actually has effects on your brain and does different things, to different circuits in your brain. So if you've got um, elevated cortisol for long periods of time because of co- chronic stress and chronic activation, then some other things are happening. Um, yeah, for sure. But but again, that's not really connected to polyvagal theory directly. I mean, the thing is, the interesting thing about the polyvagal theory and, and just sort of, I think that many people think that it's sort of like this overarching thing that sort of put brings all this stuff together in a nice little package um that we can sort of say oh this is this and this explains a lot of things and it isn't and it doesn't and and that's the the interesting challenge about the brain is that it's going to be hard for us to find you know sort of an overarching theory which will allow us to understand like how we respond to trauma or how we respond to stress or how our body you know it's like or, or even you know regulation and co-regulation i think that that's it's going to take time to figure out um, all this, how all this works. One of the things I talk about in my article is that, is that is that studying the human brain is hard. Because we can't, for good reason, like experiment on it, right? And so we have to approximate. We approximate by using animal models, we approximate by using cell cultures, we approximate by looking at uh, human brains. But in like active, like in big machines where the resolution is actually not anywhere near as, as fine as it is when we can use animals or, 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 you know, cultures or whatever. And so we, it's all an approximation. And so when we look at like, when, when scientists look at like a rat or even a, 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 a primate model, um, there's no guarantee we work that way. And we can't necessarily confirm this high resolution understanding of a particular kind of thing that it works that way in us because we can't know, because we can't know at such a high resolution until the science sort of gets to the point where we can, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, I think probably it will eventually in, I don't know, 50, hundred years, we'll be able to do much more higher resolution, under, you, know, you know, investigation of our brains as they're working, but we don't, we're not there yet. And so that's the challenge is, is, is is bridging that gap between what happens in us and what we can understand?
0: That's reminded me of something we had Dr. Scott Lillianfeld on, and he um, and he has a book, "Brainwashed," and in reading that, it talked about a lot about the the how problematic it is to study the brain exactly what you're saying and that a lot of these things get splashed on you know on the internet and in the media that they just show a picture of the brain and it's nice and clear and it's lit up in these sections and you talked about how that's often not just somebody's brain that's a superimposing of you know all the 100 people in the study overlaid yes. and colored and yes. and cleaned up to exactly. kind of represent what we think is going on but it's yeah. not
3: <laughs> and we and we don't know how whether You know, your brain and my brain are going to respond exactly the same to the same thing. We just don't know that. We don't know what the variability is going to be. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting challenge. I think also the challenge, especially when you're coming from, um, from a a framework of psychology or therapy is, well, if something, if a therapy works, um, what does that mean? And, and maybe it means that the brain works in a particular way that the therapy thought that it meant that it works, but maybe it just works for some other reason. And, and the fact that it, and the fact that we might not have a very specific me- sort of neurobiological mechanism for why therapy works doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. If it works, it works. That's great. Right. So, yeah.
1: So does that mean that the the theories that that um that lead to applications for resolving trauma or understanding trauma that come out of polyvagal theory that they they almost don't need the theory to that they are they valuable in themselves are they different to them? I
3: think they're valuable in themselves I mean if I mean if they in fact work I mean. That that isn't necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that the polyvagal theory is true. Um, it, it could be that they work by happenstance. It could be that. I mean, again, you know, some of the stuff around polyvagal theory is around, you know, um, excuse me, what people say is polyvagal theory is around stuff that's actually been around for a long time. You know, as I said, uh, our 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 parasympathetic nervous sympathetic nervous systems, our fight flight freeze reactions. I mean, those things have been around for a long time. And so if the therapies are based upon those understandings, well, that makes sense because that's something we've known for a while. Um, Yeah.
1: So in terms of in a classroom, because we can think about um, students availability for learning as social Mm -hmm. engagement, right?
3: Mm -hmm. Totally. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And So is that, is that what you'd think of as co-regulation or neuroception? How are those terms involved when kids are are ready? Yes, to the
3: neuroception would be the individual kid um, sort of sort of detecting in their environment. Do they feel safe? Is this an environment in which they feel safe? And are you know are are there sort of um, are there mechanisms of threat being activated or not in that environment? And that's going to be a kid by kid basis because it could be one kid is sitting there and his bully is right in front of him. He's not going to feel safe. Right. I mean, I can say that from personal experience because that happened to me when I was a kid. So I was really badly bullied when I was a kid. And so it's like there are situations when I was in the classroom with that bully, I was no way I felt safe. You might not know that. Right. That's the thing is as the teacher or the psychologist in the school, you probably don't even know that. Um, and so it's going to be a kid by kid basis. I think, co-regulation so so i think co-regulation requires regulation requires so you can't if you have two people who can't regulate themselves they can't help regulate each other co-regulation requires some level of skill with detecting oh yeah i am i'm activated i'm in a state of fear i'm i'm feeling fear i'm, I'm wanting to run away or i'm wanting to fight or whatever and so I'm going to breathe. I'm going to, you know, relax. And, and so it requires some level of skill on the matter of those two people in order to help each other regulate or a group of people. There has to be some skill present in order to do co-regulation. Um, but co-regulation is really powerful. I mean, the ability for us to regulate each other. And again, it requires a certain amount of safety and a certain amount of, I don't want to say intimacy, but comfortability with, with the person that you're Co-regulating with, so for instance, there are some teachers I can remember from school that could totally be, I could totally be imagine helping me regulate, and others that I can imagine would never help me regulate, and that's also going to be an individual, you know, kid by kid thing.
2: I think that makes such a good um, argument for us adults trying to build and maintain positive climate and culture. That's supportive and affirming and welcoming to all students. So, mm-hmm. right, we never know whether some child that we think isn't paying attention and is distracted may have, you know, some sort of uh, bullying issue or maybe triggered by something that's going on. And exactly. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. What do you think is kind of. I mean, I think there are so many people that that I see that are um, talking about polyvagal theory in different ways or talking about applications of polyvagal theory either to um, therapy or education. And what do you think the the current state of that conversation it you know, like what would what would make that better for you in your mind? and and also what's the future of it do do we need to continue to think about it think about these applications of of our nervous system um differently or or investigate polyvagal theory
3: yeah it's a good question and i'm not quite sure how to answer it because i i'm I, you know i don't have any um uh Ability to change the conversation, you know, but I think what I would say is that I, I wish, I do wish that people would listen to, I mean, it's, it's, you know, over the past, um, quite a while, there've been a number of neuroscientists who've said, Hey, you know, this is not, you know, um, this is, there's some problems here. There's some definite, you know, things, there's some definite blind spots. And, and, and I think that it would be helpful for people to know that that's true just that the, I mean, I think people have the sense of polyvagal theory equals truth. And I think that that's just not right. And I think people need to understand. And, and also that it's, that it's, that it's a hard, it's hard. I mean, that most people who talk about it and use it aren't in really a position to, 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 to understand the details of why it isn't scientifically supported. Um, and so, and unfortunately, Stephen Porges has not like, you know, said anything about it. I mean, he actually continues to sort of try to really, um, uh, I don't know how to describe this. And I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on him at all. Cause I don't know him. And, you know, but I, I think it's just the, the way that it, um, the way that it has been, uh, his responses to people who, who have said, Hey, this is a question has felt to me like it's very much sort of um, uh, not really helpful in terms of people understanding it better. It feels like it sort of, he sort of gets into the weeds of the details of the, of the, but without actually explaining, Oh, well this is, yeah. I mean, because they're really very reasonable um, objections to it. And so I guess, so there's that piece. Uh, And I guess also I want people to know that there are so many other things in the brain that help us understand our fear responses and our responses to threat and neuroception. I mean, like the amygdala. The amygdala is huge. The amygdala, and I mean, I'm not going to say the amygdala is, I'm not going to propose a theory that says the amygdala does all this, right? I'm not going to sort of, but I could easily propose an alternate theory that's all about the amygdala. It does everything, you know, it's the same thing. In fact, then there's more, I mean, there's more, there's more evidence that the amygdala connects with facial nerves than, than the than the vagal does. I mean, that's true. There is more evidence of the, of the a connection between the amygdala and the face than there is between the vagus and the face. So that doesn't get talked about, right? Nobody hears that. And so, and so I think the thing is, it's really complicated. And I don't think there's, there isn't a way to, to put this up into a nice meal package. And, but some people sort of try to propo- keep, keep that going. And I don't know what to say to that. I don't know how to respond to that.
0: I think that, yeah, people want things to be simpler then you know i mean that's like human nature i feel to just want the quick easy you know explanation not that it's easy in itself it sounds fancy you know so i Mm. think there's appeal in that too a little bit like pop psychology a little bit of you know (laughs) things that that makes people go oh that's interesting that's really that's really neat that's a good thing to to talk about Um, but at the same time it's way kind of not in
3: the full picture. <laughs> and to be completely honest, the pol- that idea of polyvagal theory—that's actually sales because it's only two parts. Only it's bivagal. There's two parts of the vagus nerve, not poly. So I don't know. It, that's that, that. I just find that hilarious. That I and mean, because it is sort of like and it it's sort of sexy, you know, polyvagal theory, right? But it's it's only two parts of the vagus nerve. It's not three. And and so anyway. So that's that's another little piece that sort of it's a little bit of my pet peeve because it's like, no, it's not Polly. Polly is many. That's it's not right. So. anyway, <laughs> so,
0: Yeah. I'd like to hear more about, yeah, some of the criticisms. I, I think you've touched on a couple, but it seems like there's, there's a whole, you mentioned, you know, various kind of um, critiques yeah. or questions about it that people just kind of brush aside.
3: Well, yeah. The, I mean, one of them is, is that thing about the connection with the face um, and there's some interesting studies which show that, that vagal nerve stimulation can actually affect our recognition of facial expressions, which is fascinating. Right. But there's no afferent There's no afferent. Efferent is effective. Afferent is when you're going outward from the brain. There's no afferent connection to the face from the vagal nerve. So there's no, there's no actually way that the vagal nerve can affect um, the way that the face works. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is this idea that the dorsal vagal is an, um, evolutionarily newer than the ventral vagal. Um, the, but there's actually, there's actually, um, evidence of a dorsal vagal in, 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 uh, fish, some primitive fish. Um, so that's the evolutionary thing is, and, you know, I think the question about, about sort of, um, mammals in particular and, and sort of social engagement, it's like, I think that there's a, it's like, why, there's often um, assumptions about um, about sort of phylogenetic phylogenetic is evolutionary assumptions about what animals do and can can do and can't do um, which I think are often f- are really actually wrong I mean it's like we think of certain animals as less um, intelligent or more primitive um, and in fact there's some animals that are incredibly like crows for instance octopi i mean so i think we we don't we sort of ascribe certain levels of intelligence to different to different animals by evolution by evolutionary sort of evolutionary tree but that may may not be true so you know so there's there's that piece of it um there's also some complex stuff around um respiratory sinus arrhythmia which is when you breathe in and out um your 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 uh, heart rate changes um, and the, the amount of that change has been thought of as a way to measure some levels of stress and some of the ways that Stephen Borges talks about, um, respiratory sinus arrhythmia are not correct. And I'm not an expert on that. And so I can't dive into that in detail, but, but that's, that's, that's one of the critiques is that his, <clears throat> the way he talks about, um, respiratory sinus arrhythmia and the role of the vagus nerve in that, um, is, is not supported by by some science by science so so those are the details
0: um i i often hear and i'm not sure if this is sometimes connected with what people think the theory is saying but i I frequently hear you know the reptilian brain that somebody's gonna be overwhelmed and they're gonna revert to this reptilian kind of um Mm. brain functioning is that at all related is that
3: It is. I mean, it's, that's, that's actually been around for a while. And it's true in that the parts of our brain that handle a lot of our stress response, especially the ones that are pretty quick, um, are in the hind brain. And that's the, that means, and it it just means that that's the part of the brain that's been around for the longest. Um, and the thing is that we don't actually know how much of that has been is affected by other parts of our brain. There's lots of interconnections. Um, it's just things people say, and it's fine to say that, but it doesn't mean that there's like an inter reptile or, or anything, or, or that reptiles necessarily work exactly the same way either. Um, it's just, yeah, but it's been around for a while. It's just because that's the evolutionarily oldest part of the brain.
0: We have a viewer question um, about, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, what do we say to parents who are wanting to learn about oh polymaker for their kids because they saw it on TikTok? <laughs> gotta love TikTok.
3: Ah, oh, um, gotta love TikTok. That's a great question. I, I am not sure what to say. I mean, I guess, I guess I would say, um, I guess at that level, I don't know how old the kids would be, but I would say something something just along the lines of that we have different responses when we, when we get stressed and that this is a way to talk about, you know, the fight and flight and freeze and appease responses that we have when we're threatened and we, when we have, when we're afraid, And that's, I would just keep it to the pretty simple, you know, responses to, to threat sort of stuff.
0: So, so correct me if I'm wrong. So it seems just like a situation where it's a kind of a basic theory that maybe doesn't have a whole lot of application and it's just kind of spun out of control or, or is that simplifying that too much?
3: (laughs) I mean, it's a particular, it is a theory. um, And, and, you know, I mean, I, I, the problem is that that theories and their applications I mean, depend. I mean, well, okay. So there's a theory, and if it was correct, it certainly would have application. Um, And in a way, it's the thing is that it's so detailed that, like, does it? You know, does the fact that. The, the ventral and dorsal vagal nerve don't work exactly like it's that Stephen Borgia says it does have any influence on whether or not certain kinds of therapy, which are at a completely different level, work or not. Um, and, and so it's just hard to say. Um, I don't, I, it's, and I don't want to say we should toss it out entirely. Um, but I do want to say that it, it should be sort of the caveat about it is that number one, there's some serious problems in terms of whether or not it's supported by science. And number two, there's lots of other systems besides a vagus nerve that have to do with this stuff that you should be looking at and thinking about. And and adding to your sort of list of things to to start to potentially create therapies around.
0: Yeah. So so therapies that are validated by research and we we know are effective, yeah. not necessarily because it lines up with polyvabes.
3: Yeah and there is um a theory which is called um neurovisceral integration um which is a it's 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 it involves more than just a vagus nerve um it involves a number of different systems and it has a much it has much more scientific basis for it it's not sexy it's really complicated it's hard to explain and so that's probably why it hasn't you know, neurovisual integration is not a sexy name. You know, sorry, but uh, and so it's probably why it hasn't caught the caught the imagination of people. Um, but it actually has more um, more scientific, more science supporting it than the polyvagal theory does.
1: So, we, before oh. we move on, we have um, a viewer question. But the last thing I wanted to just clear up is that. Neuroception, which is a thing often discussed uh, by, I think, by polyvagal mm-hmm. advocates. Um, mm-hmm. that is, uh, a concept that has a foundation in other scientific evidence. Is that right?
3: Sure. So neuroception is, um, is just the idea uh, that we as human beings are in, are, are, are evaluating our environment for safety. And that we, we, there's certain cues that we, that we take in that say, oh, we're not safe.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to involve the vagus nerve at all. I mean, it just is just, it's just we, and I, I don't know that people understand. I mean, there's been some work on neuroception and some work on what parts of the brain are involved with in neuroception. Um, but it's complicated because it involves lots of stuff. Um, fear conditioning. It involves, you know, our, our visual system, our, our, you know, our hearing all of our senses, it's complex how, how we do it. And I don't know that people really exactly know how we do it entirely. Um, So, but yes, that concept of, yes, we spend some amount of brain energy detecting whether or not we are threatened in our environment is totally true and important. We uh, have a
2: viewer question as well. Um, this is from Isaac. He would love to hear more about uh, your current work in self-compassion mm-hmm. and its research base and application to schools.
3: Sure. So I should just say that I'm not a researcher right now. I, I, I teach I teach workshops and but I have but I do read <laughs> a lot of scientific research these days. Um, and there's and actually this is psychological. There isn't actually, there's a little bit of work that people have done on um, long-term um, folks who do a certain kind of meditation. It's called meta for long-term like long-term practices of meta, which is the self loving kindness, self-compassion meditation and some work about what parts of the brain are affected. And so there's a little bit of that, but it doesn't, it doesn't really say how it works. It's just that it were that something changes in the brain. And that's true for meditators in general, contemplative practitioners. They've looked at, They've looked at Buddhist monks, they've looked at Christian monks, they've looked at people who do contemplative practice and found that there are differences in their brains. So there's that. And then from the scientific realm, there's a whole thing about the self-compassion scale and the ways in which the self-compassion, people who are high, rate high in self-compassion scale are actually more resilient, are able to make more positive change in their lives. That's a psychological research, not really neuroscientific research. And so there is some great research around self-compassion. I was I was like, oh, I, I was, I forget, now. it was a, a while ago now, a few years ago, I was doing some research on something else and I came across this self-compassion scale and all this research people use the self-compassion scale and shown like all these different things, measures based upon that. I was like, oh, this is cool. I was excited about that. <clears throat>
1: I think that the self-compassion scale is Kristen Neff, right? Is that
3: from her? I think so. Yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, and in terms of application to schools, I will say I I was an educator in higher education, um, but I have never educated I've never taught. I've not never taught um, K twelve school, and also I never have had kids, so I am pretty. I am yeah. I'm pretty uneducated when it comes to anybody under eighteen. <laughs>
1: So you also, um, uh, study or, or practice, would you say, um, embodiment and
3: I, 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 I so I, I, I teach, um, practices that are related to embodiment.
1: Okay.
3: And again, by embodiment, um, is just like, um, how we are aware of our bodies, especially how we are aware of how our emotions show up in our bodies. Um, and the ways that we, the ways that that, is um allows us more ease because as we're aware of our emotions we can recognize them accept them um there's also some interesting research actually about um interoception is what it's called which is our ability to 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 understand what's happening in our bodies and resilience um so that's something that's been it's a sort of new researcher i think but yeah
1: and interoception. i always think of all of interoception, pro, procep, proprioception, proprioception. Uh-huh. <laughs> thank you, um, uh-huh. as, as kind of components of neuroception. Is that not right?
3: Mm, well, So neuroception, my understanding, and I could be wrong, and people also could use these terms differently, my understanding of neuroception is it is a term that was actually coined by Stephen Porges okay. to talk about the ways in which we detect threat um proprioception it's an old term it's about how we know our position in the world like how we know i actually studied proprioception and when i was in uh, graduate school um how we know our body's position in the world um and interoception i don't know how new that is but that's just our sense of of what's happening inside of us
1: okay and then there's also um from my ot friends in schools they also talk about vestibular sense. Is there a ception word for that? balance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's balance balance.
3: And that's mostly our um, inner ear.
1: It tells okay. us. Right.
3: It's balance. And movement. Balance and movement, I think.
1: So do you think that the integration of those three internal senses, is that part of embodiment and is that helpful to regulation and um, social engagement? Are those things important for that?
3: Well, I think, um, so I would say that our ability to understand and to know, um, what's happening in our bodies and in particularly like what our emotional state is and whether or not we're activated, um, is what allows us to regulate. And so, because if we're not aware of what's happening internally, we don't know whether we're feeling sadness or anger or afraid or joy um, then we can't really regulate ourselves we can't regulate we can't come to a state where we can be sort of like at a calm place where we can make choices where we can learn where we can interact and in, in, with people um, and so being aware of 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 how we are in the world and how we are in our bodies and <clears throat> in, in the moment um, is an important part of regulation and it's an important part of being able to, 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 yeah, to relate to each other. And certainly by personal experience, personal experience, my own sort of path to being much more aware of, of what's happening internally, particularly my emotional state makes a huge difference in my own ability to regulate myself in times of stress. For sure. I've learned that.
1: Yeah. And kind of circling back a little bit to, um, to fear responses, it seems like one of the things that happen when we when we are fearful um, is this purposeful kind of disconnect, well, not so purposeful, but this disconnect between our mind and body in a way, a, a mm-hmm. kind of avoidance of not wanting to feel that or, mm-hmm. you know, to distract ourselves from what's happening. Cool.
3: Totally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep.
3: Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, and, and the truth is, is that I certainly in my lifetime, and, and and maybe most of us in our lifetimes won't know how the brain does all this stuff because we just don't have that It's just too hard to know. Um, hopefully, and you know, sometime we will figure it lot out. But it, right now, it's just hard to know, and and so we sort of have to. It's a little bit unsatisfying, you know. It's like I, I do this work. Where I talk about embodiment, I talk about emotions, and like, and something that we know a lot about emotions, but I mean, talk about how, how all this stuff happens internally, it's like in the up here. I don't know. I mean, we don't know. We really, literally don't know. And we have some clues, but we don't know any details. We don't know it at any detailed level. And it's going to take a while before we do, which is sad and unsatisfying, but that's the way it is.
0: But I think that's good for a school psychologists to know. I mean, oftentimes we come across people. Um, in the field that, that talk very confidently about the brain and right. and the relationship between emotions or cognitive functioning. And I've seen, you know, counselors talk, well, this part of the brain talks to this part of the brain and then this happens. And so I always, my feeling is always that if you're going to talk confident about the brain, you probably don't know enough to know that you don't know enough. Like, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that's good for us to kind of, Take a step back. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on yeah the role of neuro research and whatnot in education. We've had guests on that have said that really because of where we are in our lack of understanding and our inability to measure things. And also, you know, the, just the nature of schools. We're not going to hook anybody up to an MRI in the classroom to figure out the reading problem or the math problem or the social emotional problem. Um that you know, so we've had guests that just say, like, it really doesn't matter, and stop kind of paying attention to it at this point. I mean, if there has some utility, maybe for, for supporting theories. As far as you know, if we have a theory that this is how it's working out, and maybe we can test and get some information to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as functionally in the school, you know, is do you see that there's a place for this research to be applied or?
3: No, I think it's not direct. I think it's takes a, it, there's a lot of steps. And, and especially since a lot of I mean, sort of a lot of the research is at a very, very small level with making small um, uh, connections between little things in very particular situations. And there's so many steps between that and what's happening in real life. And, and you just, it, it's hard to make the direct connection. And so, and I think it's sort of like, it's, it's many steps away. Um, just like the fact that we can talk on this, you know, thing here, um, was many steps away from what happened when we understood, first understood electricity, right? Lots of stuff happened between then and now. And so, it, there's just so much. It just, yeah, it's gonna yeah, it take a long time. It's gonna take. And it's going to, yeah. And so, and again, I think it's, it's important to remember that if a therapy or a, an approach um, works, even if it's based upon what something that ends up being not very well supported, it still works. And we can maybe go back later and research why this thing works. Oh, this group of people had this, this, oh, this, oh, we can figure out that, you know, we can go back later and find out why it worked. But the fact that it, that it works is the important part if it, you know, it doesn't really matter that what, what it was based on ended up not being true.
2: That's it's a great of, point. Oh, sorry. Rebecca. No,
1: that's okay. I was just going to comment. It's kind of a, a problem with language. Like for, I think of, for example, um, teachers give kids brain breaks and they're just movement breaks or it, you know, yeah. may or may not have much to do with their brains, exactly, <laughs> except for that they yeah. have them and yeah. they need them to move. <laughs> <Yes. clears throat> I see a lot of
0: opportunities for yeah companies, for people to take advantage of educators of school systems to peddle some stuff that, you know, again, you say, oh, it's backed by brain research, or I've seen all sorts of trainings on, you know, you just need to get them to cross the midline, and then everything will be good. And, you know, you again, us lay people don't have maybe the ability to differentiate what's what's nonsense, or again, to realize that things are way more complicated, and there's never such an an Mm -hmm. easy fix. Um, Mm -hmm. But I like what you're saying about, you know, if it works, like, Maybe we don't care so much at this point, you know, why that is. Mm-hmm. If it works, it works. Mm-hmm. And so I think that our our, our outcome studies and our, um, you know, comparing our randomized controlled trials and, and stuff like that are so, so important. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking back to a couple of comments that Rachel said. Um, you know, it, when I was growing up, you know, everybody wanted to know, what was your dominant hand? And so, you know, if you were left-handed, then you're right-brained and that meant you were creative. And if you were right-handed, you were left-brained and that meant you were logical and never could the two, you know, (laughs) interrelate. Right. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, we think about the brain is systemic, right? You know, when, when people have head injuries, often uh, other parts of the brain compensate and, you know, with, through therapy and support, Um, mm-hmm. People can overcome or or compensate for some of those yeah. things. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yep, it's pretty
0: amazing. I mean, my boss once said uh, or, or jokes that you know because a lot of the catchphrases to on some of the stuff are brain based this and brain based that, brain based learning, brain. Based, and she's always like, "Well, yeah, it's brain based. What do you think? Is is it your liver? Like, what you <laughs> liver based? Like, I don't know, <laughs> She likes to joke about that. That we just throw in the brain, just right. you know, to sound to have some credibility somehow.
3: <laughs> and interestingly enough, I mean, you would be surprised by how much of your nervous system is in your gut. <laughs> there's, a, we have a huge number of neurons and connections in your gut, and there's a lot of stuff we don't know about the about the the, gut, the nervous system in the gut and how much it does and what it does and how it relates to anything. So. Um, But yes, it is, it is, it is funny how people use that term. Um,
0: That's interesting. I I definitely hear things about that gut brain connection. And I'm Mm -hmm. always kind of not sure, yeah, how evidence based that is, because yeah, there's some things that seem like, oh, that's, that's interesting, that could be and then from that I hear also we get you know, I'll get parents to come in and say they have, you know, leaky gut syndrome and this means this, and this means this, and like just these kind of going down a rabbit hole of, of all sorts of things. And so it's hard to figure out what, what is, yeah. I, so I, if you're, I mean, we don't have too much time, but is there anything that we should know about this gut brain connection?
3: <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, there's a lot we don't know about it. I mean, the challenge is that, I, I mean, I love science. I, I, you know, I was a scientist, a trained a scientist. And even though I don't do science actively anymore, I still love it. But it's hard. It's complicated stuff, and it's, um, and it, and it's. But I think that we don't. People don't. People who are not scientists don't often realize how complicated it is. And one of the things I love, I taught at, at Hampshire College. And one of the things that I love about Hampshire is that we we got the students lear- um studying, um, reading scientific literature the first year they were there. And so that they could learn how to this, learn how to read scientific literature and also learn how to understand how it's, how it's like, there might be five studies and three might show one thing and two might show a different thing. And how do you figure out which is the right thing? Because it's, it's complex. It's, it's complex and you always know and somebody could do something and it shows this thing, but then nobody ever replicates it. So it's 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 hard. Science is hard, and and it's also fascinating. But it's you can't really you can't really distill out. Oh, this one study says this thing. Therefore, it is true. It's not the way it works. But I think people think it does.
0: Yeah, we talked some about yeah, the replication crisis and, and and as far as, you know, we're not we're not repeating these studies, we're just kind of taking it and going and then how the system kind of perpetuates that and encourages newer research instead of confirming exactly. the old stuff. So, yeah. I think yeah, that's, that's so that's interesting a great topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I also I'll have to try and pull it up and we can post it. There was a study that came out um, that was looking at like several thousands worth of uh, like MRI scans and whatnot and and compared like two groups of them and got contrary, you know, and so the, the take home from that was that they thought that you need uh, larger samples to do these types of studies. And we're not been doing that, you know, so if all the studies in the past have had 50 participants, maybe that's not enough to get, you know, a meaningful.
3: There's so much we don't know about the variability of human brains. And, and so if you, if you don't have a large enough sample size, then you don't actually know how variable they are. And that means you don't know how um, reliable your, your your results are. It's, it's great
1: stuff. I, I want to recommend for anyone um, who wants to think more, listen more about the gut brain connection. The and do you know the Huberman Lab podcast? Andrew Huberman. Oh. It's oh. Really, It's great. He's a neuroscientist in California too, so I think you should be friends. Um, oh. <laughs> and he was he had a couple of episodes on the gut and intermittent fasting and, you know, the conversation about inflammation and different (laughs) foods and stuff. It was really interesting. (laughs) Well, uh, looking for last-minute questions out there, if any of our viewers have anything to ask.
2: The conversation makes me think of uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s, we did a lot of – some researchers did a lot of – Mris fMris on students who had reading difficulty, and they were able to sort of track, you know, from the eyes to the occipital lobe and to the fusiform gyrus and to Broca's area, and sort of discovered some differences between, uh, you know, um, uh, readers who are struggling versus, uh, you know, readers who are proficient. <laughs> But when I, you know, look at that and then look at good instructional methodology, good reading instruction is good reading instruction. Mm-hmm. And it, it's still, you know, and we've learned a tremendous amount about good reading instruction in the last 25 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty bad at it uh, back in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s and prior. Right. So uh, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, that's great.
0: All right, so uh, we will just looking for any last minute questions, but we're going to be starting to wrap up. Um, I want to remind viewers, four uh, three is our next uh, podcast, and that will talk about uh, developmental psychology and social emotional learning, so that will be a good one. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any other uh, kind of last words of wisdom or anything you would want school psychologists to know, or maybe Erica, Rebecca, you have some questions, and um, we're looking for other questions.
2: I just want to thank Dr. Pearl. I thought this was a fantastic discussion and it's really nice to hear your thoughts and perspective. And I think uh, Rachel commented, you know, that it's kind of depressing how much we don't know and, or perhaps how much we know sometimes. So yeah. this is really important. So we appreciate your time.
3: Well, I was really happy to be here and it was, I, I love talking about this stuff. So it was fun, fun to have this conversation. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you. And Rebecca, I don't know if you are prepared to just show a picture of your book and uh, oh, a little comment, I, but your your book is out.
1: If so. My book is out. I left it downstairs, but um, I'm sure you'll be seeing it because I'm so excited that it exists in the world. <laughs> it's called The Resilience Workbook for Kids. It's for children ages um, 7 through 12 and for their parents and teachers and school psychologists. So I hope you check it out. We really put our hearts into it and thought about the kids that we're so privileged to work with every day as we were writing these lessons and activities. So I'm so excited about it. Thanks for asking, Eric. Next time I'll bring it upstairs. I've got the box in my kitchen. It's too heavy to carry all the way up the stairs. Very cool.
0: I I saw on social media, you posted uh, your son giving a little bit of a uh, review and endorsement. I
1: thought that was fun. So much fun. I had my son home from college and he and his roommate did some book talk, TikToks for me. So (laughs) I will be sharing more. I made them film a few.
0: (laughs) Awesome. All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Pearl. That was was amazing. And we'll say good
1: night to everybody.
3: All right. Yeah. Good night, everybody.
1: Thanks, Dr. Poe. Good night, everyone.